Everyone, Neil Patel here. Thank you for downloading the latest episode of the Indian Startup Show. We have a special best of the Indian Startup Show today. Also, I'm looking for feedback on the show. If you could fill out the audience survey, it takes one minute to do. Uh, check out the show notes for the link. So today you will hear from Parag Agwal. He's the co-founder of Janajal. Uh, it's a startup building the world's first water sharing economy. Next up, you will hear from Rakesh Verma. He's the chairman and MD of Map My India. India's leader in premium quality digital map data, GPS navigation, tracking and location apps. He shares top leadership advice, talks about conviction, passion, happiness and not having the Monday morning blues. Uh, next up is Anna Kanarin. She's the founder of Brass Tax. She shares her incredible journey from studying economics to becoming a fashion designer and amazing entrepreneur. Next up is Rohit Patera. He's the co-founder of CEO of Plasio. Uh, he talks about disrupting the 50 billion Indian student housing market. And finally, we hear from Dr. Geetha Manjif. She is the co-founder and CEO of Neuromai. She talks about creating a novel breast cancer screening solution using artificial intelligence. So sit back and enjoy some of the best bits of the Indian Startup Show. Thank you. India, and I dare say the world's first water sharing economy. Wow. What we're trying to do is basically... Uh, work on the AAA philosophy, which is uh, accessibility, availability, and affordability, and try and make safe drinking water a reality in the lives of the common man. Excellent. Uh, how did you come up with the idea? So I've been working with water treatment technologies for uh, for nearly 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know those were uh, started with mainly projects at the larger level, such as water treatment plants, effluent treatment plants, uh, watershed management, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then we went on to realize that uh, you know, while I, while I was working on all these projects, I understood the need for safe drinking water, mm-hmm. which was extremely acute on the ground, but completely disregarded as a need by the administrative side because it was too trivial an issue and almost taken for granted. So that's where I thought that there was tremendous potential to uh, to focus on this and basically, uh, uh, you know, deliver safe water mm-hmm. to the, to communities uh, in a sustainable manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how this whole idea really started. How long has it been going for and how are things going so far? So Janajal as a company is, is four years old. Uh, you know, we, we started working with specific water treatment technologies mm-hmm. and very quickly uh, came to realize that uh, in India, water changes every 100 kilometers. Uh, these days, it changes every five kilometers. So no single technology can be the solution to, to making safe drinking water available. Therefore, uh, we, we decided to adopt a very technology agnostic approach. Mm-hmm. And also uh, on the basis of the fact that People, as a, as a consumer, they don't really care what treatment, uh, what technology was used to treat the water. Mm-hmm. What they care really about is that once they consume that water, they should not fall sick. So, therefore, we decided to shift the focus from technology and basically get into the uh, the end product, which is safe drinking water. And that's how Janajal was conceived. Mm-hmm. You mentioned technology. How does the technology or how does the product actually work then? So every water ATM that we so the, basically the water ATM concept was conceived with the intention of building sustainability. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, what we've seen is there have been philanthropic and charitable organizations that set up water treatment plants, uh, you know, uh, for hundreds of years almost, mm-hmm. and but they've never been maintained because there has never been a there, there has never been anybody volunteering to pay the maintenance costs. Mm-hmm. So these systems typically suffer over time. Uh, 
and uh, the over time the trust deficit also sets in very largely and consumers stop uh, taking water from such plants so it was it is very important for people to to uh, to understand what this also leads to is a lot of wastage of water because mm-hmm. people tend whatever is free is always wasted so it's and that's one of the reasons why the planet is is facing such acute shortage of water mm-hmm. today so what we decided to do is build in a sustainable model bring in a small cost attached to the water so when people pay for it they only take as much as they need mm-hmm. and what they pay is actually helps in in triggering off uh, social employment opportunity it uh, providing somebody gainful uh, employment mm-hmm. uh, paying for the maintenance paying for the capex and overall making the entire activity sustainable over a longer periods of time mm-hmm. that's right so how many of these like atm machines uh, are deployed around india then would you say uh, around india uh, I think totally there must be about a thousand twelve hundred systems right now, of of which we have close to three hundred systems, mm-hmm. of which the bulk of these have been installed under CSR over the over the last four years. But recently, the water ATM, uh, the water ATM concept has has become extreme. Has got uh, received huge amount of validation from both the administrator side as well as the consumer side. Mm-hmm. So gradually, it's catching on. So we've we've got uh, we are building out uh, the water ATM now. Very very uh, focusedly and aggressively. So in the next 12 months, we Janajal uh, by itself aims to have a thousand systems installed and operating in India. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I mean, it sounds exciting. How, how big do you want to go with this then? Uh, well, I wish there was a, there was a way to to really uh, limit this somewhere. So you know, it's uh, so people ask us what's the market size, and we say 1.2 billion people mm-hmm. and 2 billion birds and animals mm-hmm. so you know it's interesting that we also receive calls from poultry farms mm-hmm. and from piggeries mm-hmm. uh, and they call a call a call in and, and say that you know we have we have 100000 birds mm-hmm. and uh, we need safe drinking water mm-hmm. and uh, you know so the first question that that our sales team asks them back is first you got to tell us how much water the, uh, does the chicken drink uh, every mm-hmm. day and then we are told it's 1 liter a day so the point is that a, a poultry farm that has 100000 birds or there's breeding 100,000 birds, needs 100,000 liters of water every day. Mm. So that is the kind of consumption pattern or the consumption need or the demand on the ground. And I wish there was a way to quantify what is the level up to which we can scale. But this really seems like a very scalable and not only scalable, but also geographically scalable. So we can take this even beyond the shores of India. While we are focused only on India at this point in time, I feel, uh, you know, personally, we are very, very bullish that going forward, being water, being a non-negotiable, uh, uh, you know, need on the ground, there is no way that uh, this can be limited to any point in time. You said you worked for four years. I mean, I mean, what were the early days like? I mean, how, how long did it take you to get your first sale, for example? The first sale, uh, I think, the first sale that we so we really we really uh, uh, took up a challenge and. Uh, uh, so while we started in 2013, the concept really began to get wings in 2014 when right. Mr. Modi assumed office at the center, and that's when he he brought send, he brought safe drinking water and sanitation, basically wash facilities mm-hmm. on center stage in India, and that is when everybody began to sit up and take notice. And when I say everybody, I mean the, the administrative departments all the way uh, lower down. So over the next year, things really 
started moving, policies started falling in place, the, the administrative development started aligning with this particular need. So the, the so ATMs really started picking up in 2015. And so we installed, in fact, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little piece of history in our uh, professional lives, mm-hmm. that the first ATM that we really installed was on 17th of September 2015, which happens to be Mr. Modi's birthday okay. at Asi Ghat in Varanasi, which happens to be his constituency. So, uh, so we took it to him and uh, his team was extremely appreciative of what we were doing and they saw the value they saw the merit, uh, they saw the need, and they saw how this was the ideal way of, of bridging that gap between uh, free water that comes out of taps and bottled oblique packaged water that is really expensive and unaffordable for the common man. Mm-hmm. So this seemed to be the ideal uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, solution. Mm-hmm. So are you bootstrapping this or has this received funding? So this, this has been completely bootstrapped from mm-hmm. day one. Uh, we are a zero debt company as on date, but uh, you know, so we were we uh, we were really uh, fortunate that uh, earlier this year in December, in February, mm-hmm. uh, we got invested into by uh, by Tricolor Clean Tech, a social impact fund based out of North Carolina, US, okay. and. Uh, so they've invested five million dollars now in this company. They have been they've been extremely passionate about uh, about the social impact angle, about the fact that for us water is only a medium mm-hmm. of delivering happiness to people. So they understand the vision, the mission, the entire ideology, the philosophy behind which which goes into building Janajal and operating Janajal, and and they've really uh, you know supported us. So we're using that uh, we're using the funds right now to scale up the operations. We're we're now building. So previously we were we were almost compelled to build wide footprints uh, a wide footprint mm-hmm. because we didn't really know uh, which department was every department was very selectively and randomly uh, adopting this concept. But now that it is becoming almost an acceptable norm. Uh, for all municipal corporations, local administrative bodies to implement water ATMs in their respective areas. Uh, we are now focusing on building dense clusters where people can see more of this. They, can, they have access uh, you know, um, at, at short distances. So the first effort that we are really making at this point in time is installing 100 water ATMs within the Mumbai region mm-hmm. at, at railway stations. Okay. So as we, as we all know, uh, you know, Mumbai... Uh, the lifeline of Mumbai is uh, the railway network. Mm-hmm. So there are millions of travelers who on a captive basis travel every day. And that's the community we're trying to cater to. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Let's talk about you then. Uh, what, what's your background? So uh, I'm a plain vanilla BCom uh, graduate. Uh, you know, I uh, I passed out my, uh, uh, my 10th in 1985, finished my graduation in 1991. Mm-hmm. And ever since I've been an entrepreneur. Oh, so nice. it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I've never known uh, any other way of thinking, any other way of working. Uh, these, uh, you know, in, over the last five years, uh, people have started referring, uh, referring to me as a technology evangelist mm-hmm. because I've always been able to, I've always had a penchant for identifying technologies ahead of their times mm-hmm. and then working to basically bring them into India and uh, basically marry technology with application mm-hmm. so it's you know and that is one of the biggest challenges that i have experienced o- o- over these over two decades of, ex- of working with technologies in india mm-hmm. is that it's very important to sometimes uh, roll back a particular level of a technology and bring it to a level at which it can uh, meet the need on the ground and then start ramping up gradually mm-hmm. so so very often good technologies don't get implemented because the environment is not ready for them yet. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we've been able to do very successfully. I have been able to do very successfully. Mm-hmm. 
So what was your first ever startup then? And what, what did you learn from it? Oh, the, my first startup was uh, um, in 1994. I um, identified a, a communication technology. Those days, it used to be called electronic mail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, India hadn't heard of uh, anything called electronic mail at that point in time. Went on to be called email. Yeah. And I would go door to door selling email connections in pairs. Wow. Because people people didn't know who to send a mail to. And uh, when I used to go around telling people that, you know, the, the, the world in the future will be only talking to each other by email, they thought I was, I was <laughs> nothing short of crazy. Yeah. And uh, so, as I said, uh, in fact, internet came into India in 1996, uh, which then VSNL brought in. So the gateway was first set up in 96. So, so that's where I started. You know, we were again very ahead of our times. Technology was expensive. You know, back in 1994, we invested more than more than 10 lakh of rupees to set up a a, a VSAT terminal for data transfer, which is unheard of mm-hmm. those days, even today. So, so that was the first startup. You know, that was. That was a successful exit uh, to the extent that it didn't yield a lot of money for us, mm. but it was a huge learning curve, and we didn't. Lo- I didn't lose money on mm. that particular venture. Mm. But going forward, the learning curve, curve was so huge that we were able to adapt. So, so providing solutions, customized solutions, is something that uh, that I've always done. So it's not as much as product selling, mm-hmm. as much as basically customizing a solution for a certain environment. Mm-hmm. Based on consumer preferences, based on the availability of resources, and then uh, stitching all of that together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's been the for- that's been my forte. Mm-hmm. What, what did you learn? What was the key takeaway from your first ever startup? Then the learning was to basically you know be able to sustain. Mm-hmm. So I think sustainability is the key for any particular uh, activity, business, venture, relationship. And what have you. So I don't want to go into the personal aspect because then this it turns a different way. Mm. But the point I'm making here is one has to have the ability to sustain and be very agile. So I, uh, that, is, that, that is one of the things uh, that I really learned is not to have a business plan that is so strongly hard-coded that you find it difficult or you do not wish to deviate from it. Because, you know, when you're building a startup, you have to learn, uh, you have to operate that business with your ears to the ground. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep changing, altering, mending, correcting your ways, evolve your business model, develop a business model that keeps in, uh, that remains aligned with uh, external forces and external factors that are that are occurring around us. So that is one thing I learned. And I think that is something that has really helped us tremendously, even as we've built Janajal, because, you know, water, uh, water uh, lacks policy. There isn't too much of policy that binds and governs water. So it's very, it was very important to create a business model, to create an operating model to cre- that, that is unanimously uh, approved, accepted, uh, endorsed. And yet, uh, remains sustainable, uh, remains inclusive, uh, and you know does not run into into the typical inertia that one would uh, tend to run into mm. if uh, something like this had to be done. What would you say is the hardest bit about building this business? Then, would you say? Well, the hardest bit uh, that 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 I see uh, for most, uh, and, and that even we uh, really have to deal with, is is the government interface. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to go and deal with them. We have to convince them. It, it took us two, two and a half years mm-hmm. to to be able to get them to accept the fact that installing a water ATM actually makes them look good mm-hmm. and not bad in the eyes of the public. Because initially there was this typical reaction that you're saying that we need to purify the water further one more time before uh, having the consumers uh, uh, receive it. Mm-hmm. That means our water at source is bad. Now, 
so you know so, so there are certain fundamental uh, mindsets which which prevail and uh, graduating that and graduating the consumer who typically expects the government to make water available to them for free but and getting them to start accepting a new uh, new uh, new style of of uh, consumption is uh, graduating the consumption patterns getting people to understand that they now will not get water on call through their tap they need to actually step out and get 30 liters of water into the house if that's their household's consumption for drinking and cooking every day so these are things that we are facing and but and we are dealing with well and uh, it's it's moving very fast there is a concerted effort uh, all round everybody is talking extremely positively about the concept so that is one of the biggest achievements that we've made over the last 4 or 5 years especially over the last 1 1 and a half year which is getting unanimous endorsement and validation for this for water atm as a concept mm-hmm. you mentioned the government uh, what's what's it like working with the indian government well we enjoy we ex- we we, are, we extremely enjoy working with the uh, with the government of mm-hmm. india i mean clearly one has to understand uh, what are the things that one should not be doing one what are the we have to understand how they can work what are the provisions that they have mm-hmm. and that only comes with experience but having said that the you know if there's anything that has to be done at a national level at a pan india level at a, at at a level which is scalable which brings in volume the, the government interface is 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 a must and so one has to be able to put a, uh, to to deal with that deal with the with uh, the game of musical chairs as mm-hmm. we call it mm-hmm. you know people change uh, positions change policies change but having said that that's why i said you know staying agile and remaining within the corridor of certainty mm-hmm. is is the biggest challenge and uh, and that is something that we are able to do very well mm-hmm. excellent it seems like you've had a, a long entrepreneurial career uh, anything that surprised you most about your entrepreneurial career so far well what surprised me most is 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 the diversity that uh, has been deeply embedded into this almost three decades of an entrepreneurial journey mm-hmm. so the the number of sectors that i've i've been exposed to i've worked in the kind of understanding of of the number of regions geographies countries that i've worked in mm-hmm. over the last 30 years and i mean very honestly no one ever plans it that way i mean everybody wishes that they had they had a lot more consistency or uh, you know uh, uh, consistency only word that comes to me mm-hmm. to my mind in terms of, of what how their career would be but you know uh, i was always up for a challenge i i worked in the deepest jungles of uh, kalimantan in mm-hmm. indonesia mm-hmm. i worked in 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 um, the the back of beyond in madhya pradesh uh, you know deep in the bundelkhand area i worked in some very very trying and testing conditions in sudan in 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 the middle east mm-hmm. in southeast asia and uh, and it's been extremely uh, learning it's been a, it's been a huge learning curve and that is something which is uh, which has really uh, so i've always believed that you know it, it was all preparation ground for a bigger stage mm-hmm. and I, i you know sometimes i can see how every aspect of the journey and every every chapter that i learned from comes into play and and helps uh you know operate a business like janajal which uh, you know which allows us to uh, because understanding people's mindset on the ground understanding people's needs on the ground relating to them connecting with them is very very important so uh, and that is something that we are able to do very well so we are able to even inject that same mindset into our uh, into our team members into our people mm-hmm. and that's what uh, makes all the difference mm-hmm. what we doing in indonesia so uh, indonesia those were the days when uh, i'm talking about almost 12 years ago mm-hmm. when uh, i was i was actually consulting 
for uh, some uh, a very big business group in India oh. that had acquired coal mines. So I was actually a partner with them, and I was responsible for looking into the logistics of going out, securing a coal mine, and making sure that we were able to. Uh, excavate enough coal and bring it to the point of shipment so that it can be dispatched out of Indonesia. So Indonesia can be a logistical nightmare uh, because of the fact that it's it's a fragmented country in terms of its 7,000 plus islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a landlocked country like India is. So the, the movement logistics, transportation logistics can be extremely, extremely challenging. But uh, even there, it was a very successful uh, uh, journey, a very successful experience. Uh, like I said, a huge learning curve, you know, to work in the deepest parts of Indonesia, you know, get into the jungles on a moped mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and come out of there is, uh, you know, is a story to tell by itself. Excellent. Uh, we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening. Uh, what qualities, what's the one quality they should have? Uh, I have always said that risk appetite for, to, of, of an entrepreneur should be highest with their own capital. Uh, you know, very often entrepreneurs tend to, tend to uh, feel a sense of relief uh, when they get invested into and they start becoming a little careless or a little uh, random about, about the way they use the money. So it's very important to be careless with your own money. Mm-hmm. But the moment you get invested into, then the level of responsibility and the level of accountability that one should assume should be the highest that they can be. Because only that and that discipline is what will lead to further growth. Otherwise, most entrepreneurs, they fall off the rails simply because the discipline is missing. So that is, that is the one big lesson that I have learned and I would really uh, advocate very strongly. Mm-hmm. Actually, looking, looking back on your career then, you know, would, you, would you change anything then? I change nothing. Mm-hmm. I change nothing because all of that uh, has been extremely uh, rewarding, extremely fruitful. Uh, so I am a product of my mistakes. I am a product of all my learnings and uh, I wouldn't want to change anything. Uh, what's your management style like and how, how has it changed over the years? The, so the management, uh, the management style has basically evolved from being hands-on mm. to now uh, empowering uh, people. So, you know, we clearly have teams who are de- given responsibilities. They're given the right to make mistakes. They're given the confidence that their mistakes is what the management will stand by. They're, they're, uh, they're uh, encouraged to take decisions, make decisions. Yes, what they're, what they're discouraged from is repeating the same mistakes. So, uh, so, so that is something that, that has, has really grown over a period of time within me so initially we, you know there was always this feeling that if i don't do it myself it will never happen but i now believe that a lot more will happen so you've got to do by by having people do it or by empowering people to do it so I, i've now become a firm believer of the philosophy of do less to do more mm-hmm. last few questions then um what does this startup actually mean to you then at this point in time it means everything to me and when i say everything to me not just in terms of uh, my personal uh, professional career or my my journey in my own uh, you know entrepreneurial pursuit but more because you know, this is a, this is a concept which which connects with almost everybody so you know there are, there are very few uh, there are very few businesses that bear the potential to become a movement and uh, but and a movement is only triggered when it is inclusive, when more and more people feel for it, support it, mm-hmm. they, they, they endorse it. 
and they accept it. And that is something that we are seeing. We are seeing it grow multifold every day. The kind of adulation we get, the kind of uh, appreciation we get. We have people coming up and saying, look, I want to just do 1,000 rupees Mm -hmm. worth of water. I want to give away this summer. Can you help us do it? And and when we can actually help them do it, because we, we make that money go into a community and we give away free water to people worth 1,000 rupees, mm-hmm. that's when they feel that, you know, the, uh, you know so everybody, there, there is something to connect for everyone. And so this pretty much, you know, it seems, uh, this indeed is the first step to, to the development agenda. Mr. Verma, thanks for coming on the Indian Startup Show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Excellent. Uh, please tell the listeners what you're building. Well, we build maps, okay. as simple as that. But the, uh, how to use, uh, unless you use the maps, it's of no use, right? Mm-hmm. So we provide several value-added products, solutions, and services on top of the maps. So we have created the intellectual property. And on that, we are providing a, re- a suite of solutions which uh, almost entire range of consumers, cust- uh, automotive, mm-hmm. and, and B2B, B2C, B2B2C, like that happening. Well, let's go back to the start then. Uh, you know, how, how did this get started? What, what was the light bulb that went off in your brain? The start... How did we start? There are two backgrounds. Mm-hmm. One is we moved back from the US after working there for 12 long years with General Motors and IBM yeah. in the early 90s. And we started as a software company, uh, primarily on providing services on IBM mainframe. But in, uh, uh, in 1995, we stuck across a very nice uh, presentation in one of the Comdex show in Atlanta where we saw the beautiful digital map of the United States states running on uh, uh, mapping for software. And uh, we really fell in love with those digital maps. And we said, why don't we build this digital map for our country, India? So that's how the genesis of the birth of mapping happened in our country, knowing very well that digital maps uh, will take ages to build and the use of that is also quite far in the future but we had passion to do something on our own yeah. me and my wife who started it excellent and what were the early days like i mean i mean how long did it take to get your first customers and make money uh well prior to the digital map the way we started was we got the first customer and then we started the business. Okay, but after building the uh, after we got into the digital maps, uh, we were lucky. I must say that, and we were fortunate that the moment we thought of it, Coca Cola had come back to India after uh, in their second innings to start it in uh, in nineteen ninety five, if I remember it correctly. Yeah, and <clears throat> they needed digital maps to uh, create the the territories for all their bottlers in India. So that's how we got the first customer. And since then, we never looked back. But then that was more of a services-oriented work uh, while uh, while we continued building the digital map as a product. 
So building the product took us 10 long years, from 95 to 2004. Um, so let's bring it forward then. What, what would you say are the goals and milestones you want to reach in, say, the next 12 to 48 months? Uh, well, uh, so I, I guess at this point of time, let me uh, divert you a little bit, if it's okay with you, that the 95 to 2004 was one phase of our company where we, uh, on the services model, we were earning revenue. And what uh, Mr. John, Dr. John Mullins of London Business School, I don't know if you have heard his name, uh, he has written in his book as well as in Harvard Business Review, uh, a case study, which is customer funded business model. And uh, he has quoted extensively the MapMy India business. So uh, that services model through the customer funding was a first phase. The second phase happened when we launched India's first mapping portal in 2004. Uh, I don't, uh, you must remember that those days Google Maps didn't exist also. Mm -hmm. So from there onward, we have started providing uh, uh, the, the various kind of navigation products, navigation services, the tracking services, the analytics services on the maps and several integrated solutions in the location space. In the process, we have built very uh, proprietary, our own intellectual property beyond maps, the platforms for mapping platform, as well as on the IoT platform. Mm -hmm. So we have reached a very good stage where today the company is rolling mm -hmm. and uh, uh, the next 12, 14 months, as you asked me, definitely looks very promising because the current government of India's initiatives of various uh, developmental activities mm -hmm. are, uh, are uh, one of the elements the government is, focus is focusing on is use the digital maps as a base to create the various plans. What would you say is the hardest bit about building this business? Uh, the patience. <laughs> Okay. And if you ask me that what advice uh, if I have to ever give to any new startups is uh, uh, you need to have patience and the patience comes from conviction and the conviction comes from passion. So first we had the passion to do it. And so the hardest part was you keep building a product and you don't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. Meaning thereby, 95, we started building the digital maps. We had some customers, but that's not just for those 10 or 20 or 30 customers. We had uh, left the cozy jobs in the US and started doing all this. We were looking for, uh, we had a big picture in my mind, our mind. So this patience, the, having patience is the hardest part revenue, the uh, sustenance, all that happens if you have the patience follow, uh, supported by the passion. So, are you having fun with this as well? Passion, how can you have passion without fun? I guess every day I come to the office, I, I don't get the Monday blue, which typically people get it, right? And that's the only thing I try to inculcate in the minds of the people working over here, that if you get Monday blues, then probably you are not happy. So I guess not only me, most of the folks I suppose are having fun at MapMindia. That's why they're here for five long years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years now.
how, how big do you want to go with this then? I don't know. I mean, we always look at things differently. We said we will do our best. We will uh, try to remain uh, market leaders in the areas we are working on and let the company keep growing. It seems like you've had a, a long career. Um, has anything like surprised you about your journey so far? Well, I don't know if I can say anything that surprised me uh, because one, because of the maturity, a lot of things, you know, I could figure out that yes, there will be ups and downs in the whole, uh, this journey, but uh, stay consistent and stay committed to what you are doing. And that's how I have been able to deal with the ups and downs and avoid, and take care of the surprises. Uh, you received the Business Leader of the Year Award in 2016? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why do you think you got it? So, like, what advice would you give our listeners about leadership? Okay, what advice I should give regarding leadership? Uh, leadership is a complex issue. Uh, my advice would be very simple. Lead from the front. That's number one. Uh, uh, be uh, be uh, Listen to everybody because if you have started something and you are the leader then probably you have to listen the more the most and uh, i guess everybody is your boss from the customers to the employees to down and anyone okay so these are the few things i think of yeah so everyone in india seems to be wanting to be oh. an entrepreneur uh, yeah what, what are your yeah. thoughts on this uh, good, uh, good, good stuff you raised. You know, people have mixed up uh, between uh, entrepreneur and a startup versus starting a business. A business is done for normal living, and uh, what one keeps hearing is, and what I'm also observing, that people are trying to do normal, regular business for their living and calling themselves as an entrepreneur or a startup, okay? So so, that, so that, that's a mix that any reports that you see. Now, for a startup is something where I believe that a startup can succeed only if you have some differentiator and there is an entry barrier for someone else to come in quickly. That means at the end of the day, so, uh, whatever you have starting, there has to be some intellectual property in that. Maybe even if I'm starting a distribution network where I have the channels, maybe if I've built a very good channel for distribution, then there's an entry barrier for someone else to come in. So, so uh, this startup versus just doing a regular business is a big thing, big dif- difference that I have noticed because India or any part of the world, people do all small businesses, mom and pop show, open a store, do this and do that. Nobody used the word startups for them. Why suddenly the words, since the uh, very nice, cute jargon of startup uh, word has come in, so anyone starting a business, they say, oh, I have done a startup. So we have a lot of uh, first-time founders. Uh, what should first-time founders be focusing on? Hmm. First-time founder must be clear in their head what, biz- uh, what business 
or what uh, what business they are getting it uh, what i mean they must think over the stuff very clearly and they must have a clear road map in their head is i mean is it that they want to be a serial entrepreneur serial entrepreneur or building a business a serial entrepreneur would like to do something quickly maybe a year or two develop something some product and then sell out that's one approach for a new startup the second approach is no i'm building a business and so it's a long sustainable one so these these are the two things that i can think of how, how does it work with your wife then we started together and we had we had a clarity that we complement each other okay i mean she comes from a hardcore technical area although we are a technology company so i'm also an engineer but i won't say that i work as a hardcore technical i was more from a business perspective so the the two of us complemented each other very well and uh, so it became like a pillar two pillars okay today of course in a large company then the we need many many more pillars and we have those but how did it so it worked very well to give, tell you that mm-hmm. well, last few questions then um it seems you've done a lot in your life uh what's left to achieve now what's left to achieve happiness has nothing to do with you know, success or anything happiness is a state of mind right so i guess that's the last thing i i'll say left I started um, a fashion label called Brass Tax mm-hmm. and the focus of our work is to use handcrafted textiles and translate them into modern silhouettes for um, largely for urban Indian women. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And um, what inspired you to do this? I um I studied economics in the states. I went to a liberal arts college and after that I started working at an economic analysis firm in New York and it was my first job first salary after being a student and dressing in grungy clothes and i was living in new york city where everybody's dressed to the nines at 8am so i wanted to go shopping and i found that i was drawn towards tailored structured silhouettes but i missed the fabrics from home mm-hmm. and um i actually grew up surrounded by handcrafted textiles because my mom started a sari retail business when she was pregnant with me mm-hmm. so i've grown up surrounded by handwoven textiles and block printed textiles and i didn't realize women like me who was looking who were looking for those clothes and so i was searched for them in new york i searched for them in chennai when i would go home to visit my parents i never found them and so i said hey let's let's start this mm-hmm. excellent and how's it going so far can you like share some stats uh, in terms of orders and you know how many customers you have Uh we have around um 4000 customers in Chennai and a little over 2000 in Bangalore. Excellent. And um you know like a little under 1000 customers in other parts of the country or the rest of the world. The response has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. There was a void in the market. I started Brastax at a time actually 10 years ago at a time when um there were either high end designers working with a lot of bling mm-hmm. or at the lower end of the market there was a lot of mass produced fashion that uh, wasn't very imaginative and there's a huge void in the market of stuff that was priced somewhere in between offering really great quality stuff that wasn't bling stuff that 
fits into women's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing it for 10 years. I mean, um, when, when did you realize that, you know, it was going to work out for you? Was it a particular time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been through several phases of wanting to quit <laughs> and thinking that this is that I'm the luckiest person in the world because I get to do this job that I love. Mm-hmm. So it it really ranges depending on how well things are going or how badly things are going. Um, if it's any consolation, I talk to other entrepreneurs and they tell me the same thing. Um, yeah, I, I started without any background in textiles, fashion or business. And I kind of started on a lark thinking, well, this idea is is never going to go away from my brain. I'm always going to have this what if hanging over my head unless I do it. Mm-hmm. And worst case scenario, it doesn't work. And then maybe I have a good story for business school. But I enjoyed the process so much. There was never any looking back. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, and looking forward then, what would you say uh, the company would look like in, say, like five to ten years' time? <laughs> I always have a hard time with this question because I think it's such a a left brain way of looking at things. Um, you know, I'm a designer primarily. So I, I'm really fascinated by this idea of clothing women who are really intelligent, ambitious, uh, women who represent contemporary Indian thought. (laughs) And I want to reach out to more women, but what that translates to for somebody who thinks in a more uh, linear fashion is of course, more stores or more points of sale. Mm -hmm. Um, at the moment, I want to work towards a show at Fashion Week, and I think we need to look into how we can increase our online sales through third-party retailers. Mm-hmm. It seems yeah. it seems like a quite a competitive market. I think there's room for everyone at the table because the the diversity of the market is huge, mm-hmm. and the number of labels and brands that have something unique to offer. Um, doesn't quite match up to how much the market can consume. Um, so yes, in a sense, it's competitive. Um, if you're competing with um, mass-produced labels where price is their main USP, um, but I think for anybody starting a new business, whether it's in fashion or not, it's not a great idea to start unless you truly believe that you're offering something, you know, of value and something that's distinctly different from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, I have to believe that that's what I do have to offer. Uh, and it's important for me to keep asking myself that question, you know, like, am I producing something that's truly different and truly uh, unique? Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I don't think so much about the market being competitive as whether or not I'm doing something that's different and interesting. Mm-hmm. Actually, you said you were self-taught. I mean, how, how did you teach yourself fashion design then? I found a professor of pattern making and I twisted his arm and asked him to teach me classes every Sunday because he was busy from Monday to Friday teaching at university. So he would give me a four or five hour lesson um, on a Sunday and he'd give me enough homework to last me through the week and then we'd meet again the following Sunday. And we were supposed to do, we were actually supposed to do five models covering, you know, a basic top, a basic skirt, join them together to make a dress, a trouser and a jacket. But by the time we got to the dress, I opened my store and then life became so busy afterwards that I never got a chance to learn how to make a trouser and a jacket through through formal education. So I just had to teach myself on the job. Um, We created a a size chart that works really well for curvy Indian women. Mm -hmm. And so I, I couldn't just buy any old trouser and jacket from another brand and copy it because the size, the measurements just wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So our pants, which are actually really well appreciated and one of our fastest selling items at our store, it took me literally 110 samples to create our first trouser. Mm-hmm. It probably would have taken a regular fashion designer way fewer samples, but because mm-hmm. I didn't have that formal training, um, yeah, it was trial and error learning on the job. Mm-hmm. Actually, what does your mum think of this? Because didn't, didn't you say she was a, like, um, uh, she had her own store or something? Yeah, she so uh, she and her partner started a sari retail business. So it's it is more traditional clothing, mm-hmm. uh, but we have very similar taste in textiles. Very different taste in the in the end product and clothing. Um, but my parents are extremely supportive of the work that I do, and I get a lot of free help from them all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you've been doing this for ten years now. Uh, a lot of fashion businesses have failed. Uh, you know, why why do you think you're still going then? Uh, why do you think you've su- succeeded? Well, what is success measured in? You know, I think I've had a lot of uh, stumbles and and learnings, but um, our business is still relatively small considering it's 10 years old. And so in that sense, maybe every time I've stumbled, the cost of error hasn't been high enough where I've had to shut shop. And I think um, now in the last couple of years, for the first time, are we focusing on building a really strong team so that we can actually focus more on growth. Whereas initially, I had this idea to start a business and then I sort of got um, um, you know, bogged down by the everyday, the daily grind of running a business mm. and, um, and didn't really set up a team in place. Maybe it's lack of uh, experience in age or work or whatever it is. But now is when we're starting to grow and grow in a big way. And so mm. I, think, um, I think the next five years are going to be pretty crucial for us to determine, um, you know, how we go forward. Mm-hmm. How, how do you keep on top of trends then? I like to design clothes that are timeless. And mm-hmm. so in a way, I don't pay too much attention to trends. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, I think they just, you know, infiltrate your consciousness by by observing people, by reading fashion magazines, by um, going in and out of stores. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, by and large, I don't, I try not to focus too much on trends. I don't think of brass tacks as a very trend driven label. Mm-hmm. Where does the brass tacks name come from? It comes from the expression, getting down to brass tacks. Okay. Do you use that expression? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> so I was talking with a few friends and my mom about a name and, you know, we couldn't think of a name and my mom kept offering these Sanskrit names that meant, you know, like texture or textiles. And I was like, no, 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 those sound too wishy-washy. I just want something that sort of says, this is it, you know, focusing on the foundation of a garment. I want to make stuff that's simple, well-made, everyday clothes. And she was like, okay, so you just want a name that gets down to brass tacks. And I was like, there's my name. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I mean, obviously, social media plays a big part in your business. Uh, do you have like a, a clear strategy? You know, you know, what works best for you? Is it like Twitter or Instagram or email, etc.? cetera? Uh, initially, Facebook worked really well for us and we continue to use Facebook, but Instagram works really well for us now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sometimes a combination, you know, we'll, we'll share things on both platforms. We also recently started a blog where we um, interview women who personify what our brand is about in many ways and, um, you know, write about them on our blog. And then we in turn share that on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In terms of social media strategy, I think we go mostly with intuition. We have some core values that we want to communicate and we use social media as a platform to share our 
interest and the idea is that if we're true to ourselves then we automatically attract more of our tribe mm-hmm. uh, let's talk fashion then well, yeah what's your favorite piece of clothing um i really like silhouettes that have uh, both structure and drape um right now um i have this wrap dress that i really like because it's you know fitted in parts but also really drapey in parts i also have this um really loose dress and it's it's ironic because when i first started brass tacks i said i will never design something that's loose and never design something that's all straight lines because i was all about making fitted contoured silhouettes that um follow the female form um but recently and i think this is a partially a a global trend that's influenced me even though i've been you know putting an x on trends mm-hmm. <laughs> um so recently i've been really influenced by this idea of wearing really loose anti-fit clothes and seeing how you can add little design details or a drape or cinch it in somewhere that makes it look really interesting and 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 fashionable mm-hmm. so i suppose we've all had like fashion disasters i mean have have you had any fashion disasters uh, <laughs> um I don't know. People have been kind enough to not tell me. <laughs> oh, okay. Excellent. Uh and what sh- what should uh, guys be wearing then? Uh, obviously it's it's the middle of summer now. Uh, not not in the UK, uh, obviously, but you know what 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 fashion tips can you give us guys? I think natural textiles are always the way to go. Um for warm weather, thin cotton or linen shirts work really well. Um Yeah, I like um attention to details so rather than big loud patterns um little details around the button placket or the collar or the pocket i think are always really striking and also timeless pieces that you can wear several times over without you know, feeling like you're being noticed in the same thing all the time should be question but what would fashion look like in like 50 years or 80 80 years time do you reckon if you have to guess would, 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 yeah would people be still wearing jeans trainers and t-shirt <laughs> Are everybody wearing jeans, trainers and t-shirts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I think some things will probably stay but they might um they might evolve in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, you know, I move in circles where people talk a lot about sustainability and how that's going to have a huge impact and um the way people consume fashion is going to have a huge impact on the whole fast fashion industry, but I also think that um the reality of the bulk of the market is that they consider what um how big their pocket is and how much they can really spend so um it it's going to be interesting but i also think that there's a huge um environmental impact on fast fashion so i don't know um it depends on the rate at which global warming gets worse mm-hmm. either there are laws in place that completely redefine how those uh industries work and that in turn is going to affect what materials your t-shirt and your jeans and your sneakers are going to be made of or it's going to change the the price of it or the technology behind it. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like like wearables the like the wearables market like you know techniques fashion uh, is that something you'd you'd go into perhaps? I, for me that's always um seemed less less organic and more um I don't know my brain doesn't work that way I, I I think my initial instinct is to think of it as gimmicky and you know something that um might be a fad at first but I could be wrong it really depends on um on subcultures on what people are drawn to mm-hmm. So you you've mentioned sustainability and craftsmanship and uh, you know, what does that really mean to you Sustainability to me used to mean um primarily looking at 
the raw materials that we use, um, which means using all natural textiles, um, a strong focus on handcrafted textiles, because not only is that preserving a skill, a lot of them are largely done by hand, which means um, zero electricity, zero carbon, better for the environment. Uh, but recently, I've been thinking that in addition to all of that, it's really important to consider pricing because I can be in my ivory tower making clothes. And if I'm reaching out to only a handful of people, then how much of an impact does that really have um, both in the environment as well as the people um, whose livelihoods are sustained by my business? Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot more about pricing so that we can reach out to a wider audience, because for me, true impact is when you're reaching out to a lot more people. Mm -hmm. It must be difficult doing the business side as well as like the creative side. Uh, how, how, how do you manage that? Um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out, Neil. <laughs> I, um, I think that's why it's been really important for me to build a team right now. Um, it's in, in a way, it's really important and a privilege to have a hand in everything because it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also great to have um, somebody else handle the boring stuff like your administration and operations so that I can focus more on growing the business, on creativity, on thinking about what is it that our consumers want. Because you want to put something out there that's different, but you also want to be paying close attention to what your consumers want at the end of the day. And what's your management style like then? And has it has it changed over the 10 years? Yes, it has. Um, and it's still work in progress. I find it so difficult to work with people. I think that I'm, <laughs> I'm the kind of person who likes to be left alone playing with fabric and uh, sketching design ideas and thinking about problems and, you know, how it is that we can solve a problem either, either through design or better customer service. Um, but I'm learning that in order to build a great team, like you can't grow a business unless you have a great team. And in order to build a great team, you have to be um, you have to be great with inspiring your team and leading them. And so I've been trying to spend more time with my team and mm -hmm. spending more time in getting them to um, to buy into the company's vision and to really feel inspired and motivated by it. Mm -hmm. What what is the company's vision? Um, well, at a product level, it is to translate handcrafted textiles into modern silhouettes. But um, at a higher level, I'm really um, motivated and inspired by women who are passionate, ambitious, uh, career ambitious, driven, and women who represent contemporary Indian thought in some way because we're, um, you know, a former colon colon British colony. And so I think we, there's this colonial hangover, but there's also a lot of exposure to the world and um, a strong connection to Indian roots. And it's really interesting if you look at urban Indian culture right now, because people are trying to define what it means to be India Indian today. Um, and all of that really interests me. So uh, the company's vision is to design something that really resonates with these women so that, um, you know, we're, we're able to be heard as a voice in this larger dialogue that's happening in the country today. Last few questions then. Um, yeah. What advice would you give listeners who want to get into the fashion industry? Uh, I think it's really important to believe that you can create something, that you have a voice that's really unique or that you can do something way better than what anybody else is doing because there's no point in starting another label that's you know an imitation of what already exists out there. Um, yeah, I think it's important to have a unique perspective and to keep asking yourself that question, to keep checking yourself at every step saying, hey, is what I design still really unique? Is it still really different or do I need to innovate some more? Um, and all of this is easier said than done because when you start a business, you quickly get 
into the nitty gritty of you know the daily operations and it's hard to take that step back but it's a constant dialogue between whoever's doing your R&D and whoever's staying in touch with the consumer actually how have you gone about building a brand then have you actually like come up with like um ideas you put on a paper and see how it goes or has it just evolved naturally uh initially i had ideas that i put down on paper and then it evolved naturally and then a few years ago i did this really interesting exercise where i had to define my consumer right down to the detail of what music she listens to and what she eats and it made me really think hard um about who we design for and who we're interested in designing for and are we really speaking the kind of language that resonates with that woman and until a few years ago i was very product focused mm. um i would listen to customer feedback in terms of fit and colors it was more sort of superficial um incorporation of feedback but when i did that exercise it made me think a lot harder into who is it that is drawn towards our products it made me realize that i need to spend a lot more time getting into the the psyche or under the skin of our consumer and sort of understanding what she's really looking for mm-hmm. because clothes aren't just something that you wear to cover yourself when you leave the house it's also something that could make a statement about what you want to you know how you want to be perceived or maybe it um adds to your confidence or allows you to go about your errands every day while still looking good so it's that was that was a really interesting exercise for me to do and i would recommend that anybody in any business does that mm-hmm. um what do your customers eat then <laughs> a lot of healthy food oh, okay that's good okay excellent um i mean do you have any like uh heroes or people you admire um it doesn't have doesn't have to be a fashion person Yeah, I was going to start with my parents because both of them um were entrepreneurs. Um but I I I constantly meet people, mentors outside um you know, outside my close group of friends and and friends as well who are entrepreneurs. It's odd, but um the city that I live in um is a city that a lot of people flee from after college because it's not a city that attracts um people for jobs in the same way that Mumbai, Delhi or Bangalore do. but the people who stay back or the people who come back after studying away uh come back because they either join um a family business or they start their own business mm-hmm. so by some sort of self selection process a lot of my social circle consists of people who run their own business and um so i'm constantly learning from friends as well mm-hmm. what advice would you give our listeners about running a business then uh, you know for a first time founder um aside from doing something that's really different um i would say it's very important it can be very lonely running a business um people always say that it's hard work but hard work to the average layman translates to give up your social life and work lots of hours many hours but uh in addition to that i think it can be lonely if you're used to having a team of peers and colleagues and so um it's important to artificially recreate that or make time to find mentors and peers who can help you with your work um outside of your work. Mm-hmm. What was the opinion of your friends and family when you told them that you were going to do a, a fashion business? Uh initially they wanted me to um you know I have a bachelor's degree in economics so initially they wanted me to get a master's degree and they said it's too soon. Um I think there was also this um feeling of well maybe it won't work out and you know she'll go back and get a master's degree. Um but they were also very supportive. 
I think it was mixed. I think it was a lot of concern of, is it a little too early? I was 26 when I started Brass Tacks. And, um, you know, there was, there was this feeling of, hey, there's still a lot of more time to start your own business because once you throw down roots, it's hard to kind of up and leave. But they were also very, very supportive. Mm-hmm. So, so looking back then, w- w- you know, would you change anything? No, no. I, I've thought about that many times. And of course, if I did it differently, then things would have panned out differently. I think I was very impatient at the time. If I had got a master's degree and if I had waited a little while longer, it might not have happened. Plasio is a student housing company and we are building up uh, off-campus housing for students. And we launched this first set of properties around MIT universities, India's largest private university in Delhi NCR. And we launched 1,200 bed capacity for students living outside campus. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are focusing on community-based living, student co-living, uh, what we are promoting here. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, so uh, I myself is a chartered accountant, worked uh, for 16, 17 years in institutions. I was in equity sales. Uh, uh, we were kind of you know, in search of some some good uh, good problem to solve, actually. We were kind of you know trying to find out something which is kind of you know, worthwhile to pursue. Mm-hmm. We found out that student housing in India constitute uh, $50 billion uh, uh, market size. That is that is the largest part in rental housing in India, actually. Mm-hmm. So 30 million students uh, pursuing higher education, living outside their hometown. And uh, that makes around $50 billion market. Uh, and we, we, we thought this is highly unorganized market and we should kind of you know, solve this problem. So we kind of you know, venture into and kind of you know uh, uh, pivot uh, uh, the the earlier marketplace model to self managed property model and Pesho is now kind of you know focusing uh, fully on the student housing and we are we are kind of you know uh, solving this big 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 problem. Mm-hmm. What, what specific problem are you solving then? Uh, purpose built student housing is something which is uh, which is lacking, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the number of kind of you know requ- number of beds which are required in uh, are in, in thousands actually and. And universities are having very limited capacity in in in, in campus actually. Mm-hmm. So in most of these private uh, universities, having kind of you know very limited capacity in house uh, in, uh, in campus, most of the students living kind of you know off campus. And in off campus, uh, most of these accommodation which are available are kind of you know uh, limited in numbers. Purposeful student housings are not kind of you know available easily, and student face lot of problem kind of you know finding right accommodation for them. So we are we are kind of you know building up uh, uh, purpose-built student housing. Mm-hmm. We are kind of creating uh, branded properties with all kind of you know facilities. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, that's how kind of you know we are we are solving this problem. Mm-hmm. And how are you attracting students to the platform? Uh, can you know can you share some like marketing strategies that that, that have been say say example yeah. say example. Uh, uh, MIT University is uh, 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 India private uh, largest private university in India actually, mm-hmm. based out of Noida in Delhi NCR, and we are working very closely with them. Mm-hmm. So we are also uh, incubating company uh, uh, of MIT incubation. Mm-hmm. So we we are kind of you no know, station and uh, working out of MIT campus only. So we have uh, kind of you know, direct connect with the student. We are promoting our brand in campus, off campus. We are connecting students through different forum, and uh, students are liking the concept. Actually, we are uh, as, as we are connecting directly with the parents also, because parents are also more concerned about kind of you know their what they are coming uh, first time from kind of kind of you know, comfort of their uh, parents' supervision. 
they are living outside the uh, uh, first time uh, and and safety and security is as well as kind of you know, other facilities are kind of you know uh, something which is which is of uh, interest to the parents actually mm-hmm. so we are promoting uh, our brand in campus off off campus we have brand ambassador within 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 universities we have interns who are promoting our idea among students and uh, Yes, uh, it's getting a lot of traction actually among the student community. Mm-hmm. Sounds exciting. Um, how's it going so far then? Uh, can you share some stats, please? Yeah. So uh, we launched uh, uh, 1,200 bed capacity in in our first launch, mm-hmm. and uh, these are the admission season which which are right now going on, and we are already kind of sold out 70% of our inventory, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we believe that we should be kind of 100% occupied uh, in next one month. Mm-hmm. Is that what you expected when you first started the business? Yeah, so the, the kind of you know traction which are kind of you know uh, which is there or kind of you know, built up, uh, we should be sold out hundred percent means hundred percent occupancy in next one month. Okay, so what are the aims and objectives over the next two to three years then? How, how do you plan to scale this? So uh, key is to execute very fast actually, and and kind of you know vertical growth. Mm-hmm. Next next one year itself, we are targeting ten thousand bed capacity in Delhi NCR, and our overall target is to kind of you know build. India largest student housing company with hundred thousand hundred thousand bed capacity in the next uh, three and a half four year. What does the name come from? Yeah, so <laughs> we derive Palacio from Spanish word Palacio. Uh, Palacio is uh, something a palace, a, a place of kind of you know aspirational place. So we we derive that word from uh, the Spanish word Palacio. Okay, excellent, cool. And uh, what's your background? I am a chartered accountant, a public. Uh, we, we call it uh, uh, a chartered a public accountant, a CPA in India. Call it chartered accountant, mm-hmm. and I, I work with uh, institutions like Standard Chartered, uh, Edelweiss, and sixteen, uh, seventeen year in private equities, uh, equity sale institutions, and and brokers. Mm-hmm. So uh, throughout the fifteen, sixteen year, uh, a finance background and and equity sales background. Mm-hmm. It seems interesting you're doing this type of startup from that background. Any specific reason why you're getting involved in you know student accommodation? See, student because because uh, we believe that uh, this is this is a very large opportunity, a fifty billion dollar opportunity. No competition, virtually no competition, and uh, the, the kind and the kind of you no know, pace we that we can be next unicorn in India. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you sound sounds very ambitious. What you want to do? Absolutely, and. Uh, uh, Because you know uh, this the, the business model what we are kind of you know, following is a very profitable uh, with lot of predictability on business business and kind of you know uh, scale what we can build up actually and we have very strong execution capability mm-hmm. at, at 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 launch itself we we build up uh, uh, 600 room capacity that is very large and we cornered close to 70% of inventory around uh, around MIT university campus mm-hmm. so we we believe that you know uh, we can we can execute this the whole plan uh, 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 very uh, meticulously very precisely and kind of you know achieve our target actually mm-hmm. because because top line is very strong this this business is low margin business but very very high uh, roi every stage every every unit level we are we are profitable actually mm-hmm. so we believe that if companies cash cash surplus if companies uh, working capital positive and if we have right kind of you know business model right uh, execution capability building a large organization is not a difficult task actually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sounds really exciting uh, i mean are you generating revenue out of this at the moment then Right now, uh, this financial year, uh, our revenue would be three million dollar. And what was the um, you know re- reaction to your 
to your friends and families when you told them that you were you know, leaving your business? <laughs> it was shocking. It was shocking. <laughs> I was well pleased in the companies. Actually, I was drawing good salary, <laughs> so it was really shocking. But my my wife kind of you know helped me a lot. It was shocking to the parents, but eventually they kind of you know found out. Yes, this is this is this is this is the right way to kind of you know. Uh, now they are they are in full support. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, entrepreneur journey is not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is very difficult, very stressful, very very taxing. But eventually, my family and and friends now kind of you know understood that yeah this is this is this is something uh, one should pursue actually. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the hardest bit about building this business? <laughs> so actually, I convinced them that you know the students are still facing problem, but they were they were facing twenty uh, year back when uh, we were also students. <laughs> uh, so problems are kind of you know existing, and uh, it is uh, uh, they, they, uh, at the pilot level now they are the kind of you know feeling that yes, this company is profitable and kind of you know a, a very profitable and uh, scalable company can be built up. Mm-hmm. So now uh, everybody is realizing that you know the the business what we kind of you know. Uh, opted for or the the, the model we, uh, we we have kind of you know, chosen is the right one and and uh, eventually there is a lot of visibility so there is no kind of you know contingency upon uh, uh, the kind of you know path we have chosen so now everybody is kind of you know in favor of what we are doing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what are your memories of living the student life? Uh, uh, during our university time, as well as the time when we are doing, we were doing uh, charter accountancy. Yeah. Finding the right accommodation uh, was something a Herculean task, actually. Yeah. Very, very difficult. You know, very, very kind of you know unhygienic, uh, uh, unprofessionally managed places, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the, the the problem still exists. Means uh, there is no kind of you know improvement. Uh, people are ready to pay millions and millions of students are kind of you know, living. Uh, coming from small town villages and coming to the kind of uh, to pursue higher education in uh, kind of you know, large cities, they are still facing problem. They are not finding good place to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the problem we were facing at the uh, at our student uh, time twenty year back, uh, the problem is still exist actually. So we we eventually kind of you know found out that uh, you know uh, as a student we also live the same life mm-hmm. and we know how what is the problem of a student. So it is good that kind of you know we at the same time we are we are helping student uh, to live better, and uh, at company level uh, uh, we are making uh, we we are expecting kind of to make a lot of money as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, so uh, uh, at one one side we are kind of you know uh, making uh, we are solving a social problem. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, uh, it is a good problem to solve as, as in term of kind of you know uh, making a profitable organization. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, last few questions then. Um, do you have any like heroes in business or in life? Any people that you look yeah. up to? Yeah, absolutely. There are successful personalities uh, you can always inspire with. Uh, like you know, Reliance is uh, a uh, largest organization now. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of you know drive inspiration from Dhirubhai Ambani. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other other kind of, kind of you know contemporary uh, or uh, very successful entrepreneurs in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, one uh, we we kind of you know uh, as a as a team also inspired with this Narayan Murthy from Infosys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of organization he built up with the kind of you know uh, transparency, good governance, and integrity. We we believe kind of you know we should also follow the same path. Mm-hmm. So there are people we we kind of you know uh, drive inspiration. Of course, uh, we drive inspiration from some of the uh, successful entrepreneurs from West. Uh, that include Elon Musk. That include kind of uh, 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 founders of uh, Google, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Zuckerberg. 
they kind of built up multi-million dollar organization at very young age. Uh, we drive a lot of inspiration from Steve Jobs, the kind of organization he built up, uh, the kind of dedication he had, the kind, kind of, you know, unique, uniqueness he built up uh, in, in the product. Uh, so th these are these are the few kind of you know leaders. We, these are the few people we drive inspiration and kind of you know uh, that help us to kind of you know continue in our journey uh, to inspire people to inspire people to kind of you know work more, focus more, and uh, 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 kind of you know, work for a mission with more dedication. Actually, mm -hmm. excellent. Um, what advice would you give to uh, first-time founders who are listening? Uh, I, I believe uh, one should one should take risk. One should make mistake. And but every time uh, we should learn from our mistake, uh, perseverance and focus and consistency is something actually every entrepreneur should kind of you know uh, have. and that is the, the those those are the key kind of you know uh, 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 item once once should kind of you know follow. I, I always believe in kind of you know we should not uh, 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 always haunted by our past. We should always look forward, and one should never ever kind of you know. Uh, 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 fear from making mistake actually those are the key I believe in every every entrepreneur should kind of you know character so character one also possess actually mm -hmm. and hobbies and interests how, how do you relax away from your startup <laughs> <laughs> I think when I spend life with my uh, kind of whenever I have time and when, when I spend time with my families that is the kind of you know uh, uh, the the way I uh, kind of unwind myself actually, and of course uh, every Indian is inspired by yoga. So I, I always believe in kind of you know, meditation in yoga, mm -hmm. and that give me kind of a you know, lot of uh, relaxation, and I I, I kind of you know, unwind with that actually. Mm -hmm. And what's the best advice you you've received so far, pers personally? <laughs> uh, I, I I the kind of you know. Uh, I follow uh, uh, Franklin, uh, uh, the organization, uh, and uh, the Franklin, Franklin Covey, and Stephen Covey is something uh, the one who uh, kind of whom I follow very consistently. That is a seven habit of highly effective people. Mm -hmm. uh, consistency is something I kind of you know I, I believe in that you know if I have taken a mission, I have to kind of you know complete the mission by any means. I should not kind of you know back out. So whosoever I follow, actually, Stephen Covey is some, uh, someone who I, I kind of you know, take a lot of inspiration. And the one habit is uh, consistency. Mm -hmm. So th that is something I, don't know, I follow uh, uh, diligently and religiously, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what qualities, uh, what is the, like, the main quality, quality that, that an entrepreneur should have? Uh, you have to fight back from, all, all, uh, from any of your defeat, actually. Mm -hmm. That is the, the, the major quality one entrepreneur should, should possess, actually. Uh, uh, and, uh, again, I'm reiterating consistency, focus, perseverance. How much does it actually cost? So uh, the cost starts at uh, 10,000 uh, INR, mm -hmm. uh, Indian rupees, mm -hmm. and it goes up to 25,000 INR a month. Mm -hmm. So we have range of properties. There are three type of properties. Mm -hmm. One is Plesho luxury properties, then Plesho uh, prime properties, and we have Plesho dorm properties. So 10,000 rupees a month uh, is uh, Plesho dorm, mm -hmm. and it goes up to 25,000 rupees a month. That is Plesho luxury property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you come up with those those pricing? So we we kind of you know it it, it is based on market research. Mm -hmm. We found out that. Uh, 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 people are kind of you know ready to pay higher uh, money if you have good facilities to offer. Mm -hmm. We have good uh, all-inclusive pricing that include uh, uh, good room, furniture, uh, uh, professional professional uh, management, facility management. Mm -hmm. uh, that include internet. Uh, that include uh, food. Mm -hmm. 
and these luxury properties are more uh, spacious, uh, very nice uh, properties, mm -hmm. very close to universities. So we found out that there are budget properties uh, which are in demand and there are luxury properties also which are in demand. Mm -hmm. And with market research, we found out that uh, these are the right price actually. So we have all range of properties uh, from 10,000 rupees to 25,000 rupees. We are trying to build a new solution for breast cancer screening, mm -hmm. which can help uh, all women to detect early stage breast cancer mm -hmm. in a completely privacy aware manner. Uh, as you probably know, breast cancer is the largest cancer killer in women today. Mm -hmm. And uh, less than 2% of women actually go uh, cancer screening as a preventive mechanism. Mm -hmm. So uh, really, uh, you know, we need a solution which can be affordable, accessible, and uh, acceptable by women. Uh, and, and we are trying to build such a solution. Okay. And what inspired you to do this? Actually, from a technology perspective, we were looking at, you know, how can machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, be used for medical imaging to provide uh, non-invasive uh, health diagnostics or monitoring. While uh, looking and working on this problem, uh, there were a few breast cancer cases very close to my, uh, you know, uh, my family, uh, a few of my cousins. And I was seeing how uh, they were suffering. And another data point came in that there was this technology called thermography, which people had tried before, but uh, because of accuracy limitations, it was not uh, being used regularly. So there was uh, an internal motivation to solve this problem and uh, and also uh, the technology uh, was maturing mm -hmm. and we thought it's the right time to create this solution uh, for for the people and how how long have you been doing this for and you know can you share some stats uh, you know how, how many people are using it sure um, we started uh, this particular project uh, 3 years ago uh, where we were just looking at uh, the image uh, analytics algorithms uh, ai and ml uh, you know, uh, approaches uh, to solve this problem. Um, but commercialization, uh, just about a year old. And uh, so now we have three commercial installations and uh, we have tried it on over uh, 700 uh, patient data now. Excellent. Okay. And is that, what and, uh, is that what you expected when you first launched the product? No, actually, we thought it could be very difficult because initial three years, we were able to only try it on about uh, 300 patients' data. And uh, within three months of our launching on the commercial, we actually outnumbered uh, what we had done in three years. So um, we feel we have actually done much more than what we thought we would be able to do, mm -hmm. uh, get to the people and so on. The response from the community has been really good. So we've uh, uh, actually also done a lot of outreach programs, gone to corporate houses, conducted screening camps within their offices, uh, gone to rural areas to conduct free screening camps to these people who don't have access to health facilities at all. So the response has been amazing. And I, I think even the number looks small. It's, it's in just over three to four months. And so it's very exciting for us. Mm -hmm. okay. So you mentioned machine learning. Uh, just for those people who don't understand what that is, if you could just explain that, please. Machine learning is a method of using mathematics in the form of probability theory, statistics, and so on in order to solve a real problem where just human uh, uh, you know, intelligence is not sufficient, right? You need the huge computational power of the computers to help and uh, uh, learn how a decision process is made. 
simplistically one of the ways of using machine learning is to do let's say a classification or a diagnosis of let's say cancer so here what we do is we try to learn a probability model which represents a human brain or an expert doctor's brain roughly right so what we do is we have what's called as a training set where we have a bunch of uh, patients data with the result that the doctor had earlier prescribed that is whether she's cancerous or not and then we use this historical data to build this mathematical model which now will be ready to predict for a new patient whether she is uh, malignant or not using what's called as features and so on and so forth mm-hmm. the good part is because it's a computing environment the machine learning algorithm can look at lots of data points for example for thermal scanning and breast cancer screening in niramai we use 400000 temperature values of the chest of a single lady which is a humongous huge cognitive overload for a doctor to stare at right and make a uh, um, no diagnosis so leveraging the earlier efforts and the and diagnosis that the doctors have made we learn a model which will now be a major uh, you know as a tool for the doctor to make the final decision or in some cases can also try to um, replace the doctor to some extent yeah mm-hmm. where did you learn all this then yeah i have a phd in data analytics and machine learning from indian institute of science and uh, i've actually worked on many problems where ml has been used um, being part of the research uh, um organizations for the last 25 years um having said that machine learning is a new new uh science that has developed over the last probably 8 to 10 years max and uh, have had the opportunity to go back to school mm-hmm. and learn some of these models uh, you know uh, from um, stalwarts uh, from professors of isc and other places so uh, and, and then work with very smart engineers in my team and researchers in my team to actually try it out on real problems mm-hmm. you know giving us the confidence that uh, we are ready to solve a very very important problem in 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 life today which is breast cancer mm-hmm. what 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 is the state of machine learning in india then would you say machine learning is not really a geography dependent thing um i would say that you know let's say 5 5 to 8 years back uh the techniques that were that were being used uh, were not uh, you know proven enough mm-hmm. um not having good uh, confidence in the results of ml and so on ml algorithms um because machine learning requires uh, a good amount of data to train so that you know it can actually uh, mimic or kind of reproduce a human's brain as as i mentioned so now you're seeing a lot of digitization happening everywhere Uh, for example even in healthcare you see a lot of hospitals going in for emrs electronic medical records and other kind of digital data which can be fed into the algorithm to perform better and better so i think now it is ripe enough to be tried on real um, you know critical problems and uh, we are happy to be in that era where we are just making a transition from it will have been good to try to actually can be tried you know mm-hmm. that that uh, transition of making ml real mm-hmm. so if someone's listening and they want to get into machine learning um you know how, what advice would you give them i would say go back and brush up your math <laughs> yeah okay. which uh, you know we generally you know uh, forget in high school and so on yeah. and i would also say it's not so hard 
you know, uh, go through some of the, um, let's say, Coursera courses that's available. Some of, and, and most importantly, try it out hands on. Mm-hmm. Download some data sets that are available. Try out some uh, applied ML kind of algorithms. Try out things on problems. Uh, try out these algorithms on problems that are close to you, right? You know, you have access to data. Try to think about what can I predict, which I don't know about this, and try to formulate it as a machine learning problem. And there are several tools today and, and many languages can be used for actually programming in, uh, and using machine learning algorithms to be Python, uh, you know, R, Scala, MATLAB, Java, C, whatever is the language of your choice. Just go ahead and do it. But please make your hands dirty. You know? <laughs> Otherwise, all be in books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And how we going back to Niramai then, how, how does it work? Um, can you explain how, how it works? Sure. So from an end user perspective, uh, the experience is very simple. The lady comes into our uh, center. Uh, it's a very small room and, and she just sort of made me to kind of uh, relax for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she goes in front of our uh, thermal sensing device. This is uh, also called a thermal camera, which captures the temperature from a distance. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it looks, uh, you know, it's like a small camera sitting on a tripod. Mm-hmm three feet from the patient. So the patient sits on a chair, the camera or the thermal sensing device uh, measures the temperature on the chest. The lady is asked to sort of move a bit in the chair, that's it. And uh, while doing so, nobody touches her or even sees her. There's a screen uh, where she's just given instructions to sit, uh, sit on the chair and we take the images and that's it. All the analysis is done in our software, which is hosted in the cloud. Mm-hmm. That's it. So just sit and I, I call this as a five step dance process. Sit in front, turn to the left, turn right. That's it. Yeah. So. Okay. Excellent. Um, I mean, how accurate is it then? Would you say? Uh, fortunately for us, uh, in, in the amount of testing that we've done, we've got really uh, good results, uh, uh, you know, in upper nineties. And, uh, we're really hopeful that we'll be able to maintain that level of accuracy. Uh, and what you call a sensitivity and specificity, mm-hmm. um, you know, why and when we actually go on really, really large number of cases. Um, by far, cancer detection is a very hard problem. Uh, even the current techniques are not, you know, they're no better than 80, 85 percent. There's so many women who cannot undergo, let's say, mammography because of density uh, of the breast and so on. So compared to all this, uh, doctors say that, you know, we are very, very far ahead in accuracy and sort of, you know, it's extremely promising technology. So what's been the reaction of the the health industry uh, to to, to what you're doing then? Uh, We've had uh, a couple of mixed kind of reactions. Uh, uh, The first uh, reaction is, yeah, this is really, really promising and you are on a very good track. So that's a uniform response we get. Mm -hmm. Some of the healthcare specialists are like, you know, very willing to try this out because thermography as such is already an adjunct uh, breast cancer screening modality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, it's approved by FDA as an adjunct modality. So, um, a couple of hospitals are very much open to actually install this and try this thing out or trying this out in their hospitals and diagnostic centers. In fact, not couple. We have, uh, uh, quite a few of them interested in doing this. And there are a few hospitals uh, who are interested in doing as a informal trial, mm-hmm. comparing our results with their mammography and ultrasound uh, um, tests, and then converting it into an, an 
actual deployment. And, and we are open to both. We are open to doing evaluation trials. We are open to doing screening camps for them and then get their confidence and get our own confidence that this is working fine. Uh, I increased one and then uh, uh, try this out. But uh, there are also a small pocket of them who are uh, a little skeptical. They want to see like maybe a couple of thousands uh, to be done and then they will be adopting. How, how does that make you feel then, that the people who are skeptical? Uh, yeah, so actually most doctors uh, are slightly uh, not as uh, accepting technology as, let's say, a customer care person or a transportation person. Rightly so, because it's a very, very important problem and they are making an extremely important decision. And we are talking about cancer. So it's it's about life, right? Life and death situation. So we definitely uh, understand uh, the why they're skeptic and and why why those questions are being asked and we share the uh, the current uh, approaches and the most important thing is because ours is absolutely has no side effect that is it's extremely safe we are not using x-rays we are not using radiation we just measuring the temperature it's completely non-invasive when we actually go into the lot of details they say yeah of course you can do this as another test and then when they see the results, they say, yeah, of course, this can probably be used as a mainline test. So we see them getting converted from skepticism to yes and sort of come and do it. So uh, we like that journey of moving. So we don't get deterred by the initial questions, but we like the journey of moving from, we, we always say like minus 1,000 to plus 100 or whatever, mm-hmm. that kind of uh, sentiment. Yeah. Excellent. So in the next two or three years, then, what would you say your like aims and objectives uh, definitely, we would like to uh, deploy this in a few more locations. Uh, first in India, um, provide this solution for many, many more women uh, through uh, outreach programs, the screening camps that we do inside corporates as well as uh, um, rural areas. And uh, maybe um, in the next year or so, we will actually go for uh, further regulatory approval that may be needed for going outside India as well. Actually, um, what would you, what in your opinion, what would healthcare look like in fifty years' time? Then, will it be all like AI, uh, machine learning? You know, what's your opinion? Yeah, I mean. There are many things that we can think about. Uh, First aspect is definitely AI and ML is going to play um, a good role, much better role than where we are today. Um, While we will definitely need doctors to be mediating for several of their uh, expertise. Another is uh, the trust factor that they bring in with the patients and so on. The AI ML tools will be... um, AIML algorithms will be excellent tools and friends of these doctors to help them increase their productivity and help them make very minimal errors because doctors are also human, right? And and at some point in time, you know, they're also making a little bit of a guesswork because there's so much data that's out there. So this ML tool can help the doctors really uh, assimilate the huge amount of data that will be available more uh, uh, more sensing devices will be available at that time. So there's more data, more confusion for the doctors. So the, these tools will be excellent friends. Probably doctors uh, will be in a situation that they will not be able to make diagnosis without these tools, right? They forget they're like, you know, oh, where's my tool? Without that, I can't figure out, right? So probably that's a situation that will come in. The second aspect is about what is called as precision medicine. That is, every person will have different type of uh, treatment, 
right now it's a like you know three or four treatment options and uh, a patient comes in it's either one of the three right mm-hmm. it will be very customized and personalized the medicine for each of them and again these tools will help in making that decision treatment planning and third part is i think uh, end users um would be more empowered with uh, tools which can use for wellness right so that uh, you know these are there are several variables you know you can measure your heart rate when you're walking you can measure of course your temperature your, your bp and all of those things right so these big this probably will become a common thing and people will know exactly when to go to the hospital they will actually have this preventive or uh, predictive analytics helping them to to get to preventive Uh, healthcare right so hopefully people will be much more healthier and happier because of ml healthy and happy 50 years yeah definitely healthy and happier definitely <laughs> um what excites you, what what excites you most about the startup then uh actually we are really really fortunate to be uh part of this company uh, in my uh, leading this company which has a huge potential of making a difference in the life of women and uh this what excites me a lot is that it's a very interesting problem uh there's a huge business potential and a huge social impact that um, that this uh, technology can provide so i think uh, this combination that's there uh, is is so very exciting but of course the primary one is when you actually find a lady who wouldn't have gone to a hospital and you're saying ma'am you really required to go to the hospital tomorrow otherwise you're going to lose your life mm-hmm. and we have done that you know we've done a screening camp with 20 people and like two of them we say you definitely need to go to the next test right mm-hmm. and that the level of satisfaction that comes in when your algorithm is going to help somebody live longer it's amazing mm-hmm. and it keeps keeps us going quite a bit So are you is this a profit profitable company or is this a non-profit company what's the yeah. what's the business model so, Sure so we have uh, two business models right now uh, one is a solution into an hardware software solution that we deliver to uh, diagnostic centers and hospitals uh, here uh, uh, we give uh, the solution either um, you know for three year licensing or a subscription revenue that is we charge uh, the hospital per transaction it's a revenue share per transaction the second business model is mainly to reach the reach the bottom of the pyramid or people who don't have time to come to the hospital mm-hmm. these are through screening camps so we partner with ngos and uh, you know um, preventive uh, screening uh, organizations uh, to provide and lease out this solution on a daily basis uh, to people who want to conduct screening camps uh you know they can contact us and they don't have to buy the solution full fledged but they just have they can lease it out uh, for a very small amount per per day um how how are you actually attracting customers to this just to this device you know how how do you spread the word yeah today uh thanks to media um you know we were uh, featuring in forbes economic times times of india and of course now your uh, uh, channel as well Uh, so that and that is giving us uh, quite a few uh, inward leads uh, on our uh, website um uh, we also uh, proactively contact our top hospitals in different uh, states uh, to reach out to really top colleges to learn from them uh, you know any any corrections we have to make on the course and so on and so forth so there's both reach out uh, personally to uh, specialists as well as a lot of inward leads that are coming in um as an ai ml problem 
as a technology problem. It's a very interesting problem that we're working on. So we get invited to give talks in different conferences. That's also a way of uh, reaching out. Um, and uh, the screening camps and word of mouth is, is, is amazing, right? You know, when a lady comes in, she actually brings uh, for the next camp a lot more people because she really loves the experience where she's going through a, a very, very private kind of a screening for a very, very private experience, right? It's breast cancer screening where she doesn't have to see anybody while you're doing so. She actually sort of also brings in a lot more of her friends next time. Uh, you know, when we conduct the screening camp. So all of these have helped us so far. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to scale out and scale up this uh, quite a bit in the next uh, few months and years. Excellent. Through some partnerships. Yep, seems to be going well. Um, let's talk about you then. Uh, like, what's your background? Yeah, I'm a techie at heart. Uh, I did my uh, master's uh, and uh, PhD from Indian Institute of Science, which is one of the premier institutes known for research. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, I did my master's and joined uh, uh, one of the first research uh, centers in uh, India, just developing the first supercomputer from India. It's called CDAC. Mm-hmm. Then after about seven years, I was the first member of Hewlett Packard uh, Research Lab in India. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I was in, uh, in, in, in HP labs uh, for about 17 years, uh, trying to do some really cool stuff, cutting edge technologies. Uh, in um, cloud, distributed computing, um, you know, pervasive computing, what's called as IoT, and uh, data analytics, uh, also quite a bit semantics and so on. And that's when I did my PhD in parallel. And uh, after that, I was heading the data analytics research uh, lab in Xerox for four years. And uh, that's where, I, you know, I got to work on uh, work with really smart team uh, researchers and uh, really build solutions which could be piloted on uh, uh, in, in India and other places. And, and that's where we actually started off working in this uh, area of breast cancer screening through uh, ML on imaging as well. And uh, now I am here, uh, you know, the last one year working uh, and learning a lot, uh, you know, being the CEO of uh, Niramai. And what, what's it like being a CEO then? Uh, it's a lot of learning and it's very exciting. Uh, and also uh, inside a research organization, you get to do all good stuff you know um you know you get to work on uh, novel things and you can do pilots and so on but the kind of independence that gives you the speed mm-hmm. the acceleration that's needed to make things happen you know you don't have to uh, wait for a long chain of approvals before making a small decision so this kind of you know power empowerment uh, to move very quickly is is very exciting me and my partner nidhi kind of you know we bounce off a lot of ideas. We have wonderful investors who have been giving us, uh, you know, advice on the right direction. So with that, we just sort of move very quickly. And I can't even imagine within like four to five months, we had like three fully commercially deployed solutions, many, many, many users using it. So it's it's, it's been possible only because uh, it's a separate startup. And yeah. Excellent. So we have a lot of listeners um, who want to start their own company. Uh, what What advice would you give them? Do it. Mm-hmm. If you're passionate about something, instead of uh, depending on somebody else to make it real, you do it. Jump off. Nothing to worry. If you believe that this technology will work, uh, you will go all out to make it work. And keep the passion and uh, solve any hurdle that comes, keeping the intent in mind and be open to comments from others. But please do it. If you're passionate about something, make it happen by doing it. Mm-hmm. What should first-time founders be focusing on? I think uh, 
uh, I, I, I was a first time founder. Uh, I am here. Um, but I've had the opportunity of working uh, and seeing very closely how my um, husband's, uh, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurship went over the last three, four years, right? So uh, watch uh, other people. Um, you know, I think if you, if you decide to do be a, a startup founder, think about what are the things that you need to learn. You can you know, talk to people who have done this well before. Uh, you know, um, one is learn from their mistakes. And also, you know, there's a uh, be ready to learn a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Be ready to uh, make decisions uh, very quickly with a little bit of unknown parameters, but open to comments and open to advice. Make your decision. Mm-hmm. That's and it is, it is it is not difficult. Um, is all I would say. That, but be ready to be learning every day. That's the end of the show. If you liked it, please leave a rating and review of the show. Just search for the India Startup Show on iTunes and now on Spotify. If you're building something exciting, please send me an email, hello at neopatel.co and tweet at Indian Startup SH or go to facebook.com forward slash Indian Startup Show. We'll integrate. Thank you and goodbye.